The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We're here this evening to study in the word of God. We are studying in Romans, Romans chapter 11. And uh, we wrapped up a section last time. I'm going to pick up where we left off and continue on through the rest of chapter 11. We'll see how far we get tonight. Uh, As a reminder, there will not be a uh, Sunday morning Romans service because we're going to be doing the remote service from vacation. So there will be uh, Sunday 1030 only, no Romans service on Sunday morning. And there will not be a Wednesday night service next week. So our next um, Romans class will be uh, the following Sunday. I guess that'll be the 19th uh, is when we'll actually once again have a Romans class. Before we dive into the material that we have this evening, let's take a moment for silent prayer. We do need to ensure that our hearts are prepared for the study of the Word of God. And this entails, as you know, confession of sin if necessary, but also we have to be humble, uh, ready to learn the things that the Word of God is teaching us. Shall we pray? Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for blessing us with the opportunity to gather here at the church tonight. We thank you that we have had the opportunity for fellowship here at the church. But the teaching that goes on tonight will be something that can be participated in through live streaming as well as downloaded off of the website so that it's not just the folks that are here in the church that are able to participate in the class in that manner and we thank you for the technology that enables that and we ask that whoever may be listening to this uh, whenever they may be listening to it that you will help them to set aside whatever distractions and focus their attention on what it is that your word is teaching us so that through the ministry of your word we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ we pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name amen All right, let's see where we left off. This is what we just got to. All Israel will be saved. Uh, Chapter 11, verses 25 through 32. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you might not continue to be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening of their hearts has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come about. And in the end, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Let's look at some principles. This is just the first three verses of this section, verses 25 through 27. In the Pauline epistles, the word mystery, which we have here, refers to some aspect of the stewardship of the church. This is important to understand. The the word mystery is used, musterion, is used to refer to some aspect of the stewardship of the church. Uh, Here in Romans 11.25, we just looked at that. In Romans 16.25, it says, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, in accordance with the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets in accordance 
that the commandment of the eternal God has been revealed to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. This is one of the aspects of the mystery, the musterion, is that it's been kept secret for long ages past. The whole idea of the church is something that has not been revealed previously. It was not ever ever talked about in the Old Testament scriptures. And interestingly, I, I, had, a, a, I had lunch with Pastor Bob yesterday, and we were talking about it, and he said he actually looks at that and, and, and considers the rapture event itself not really to be eschatology per se, but ecclesiology. In other words, the rapture of the church is related to the church. It was not part of the, of the end times prophecies given in the Old Testament. It was something that was never described until we get to the mystery doctrines of the church. And so even though it's future for us and it represents the end of the church itself, uh, the, you know, the last trumpet, the end of the church itself, he views it just a little bit differently because in his mind, the eschatology if you want to be technical about it, the eschatology refers to all those things that have been talked about throughout the Old Testament scriptures and are yet to be fulfilled beyond the church itself. So anything related to the church, he kind of views as separate. And I kind of I get where he's coming from, you know, that that's that idea that the rapture is kind of different in that respect because it pertains to the church. So it's part of the mystery doctrines. So it's kind of interesting to think about that way. First Corinthians two seven says, uh, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Now, this is, what's, this is important to keep in mind. So it's a mystery to us, right? A musterion, it was previously unrevealed. That's what the idea of the musterion is, something that's previously unrevealed. And it's that way to us. But as this, as this uh, verse makes clear, it was predestined before the ages to our glory. In other words, it's not a plan B. I think that's what a lot of people get confused about. Even those, even those who understand dispensational theology, they understand the idea of stewardships in the Bible, and they understand dispensationalism, a lot of people think of the church as a plan B. Well, see, God had this wonderful plan, and he was doing all these things for Israel, and then Israel, when Jesus came, Israel rejected him as king. And because they rejected him, then this is what God's doing now. And it's kind of, no. This was actually part of the plan from the beginning. That's very important to keep in mind. Yeah, it's, not, it's not plan B. It was part of the plan all, all along. It just wasn't announced. It was never revealed. See, that's different from being part of God's plan because 1 Corinthians 2.7, is, 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 it was predestined in ages past. 1 Corinthians 4.1 says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, I talked, this is another conversation I had with Pastor Bob. We were talking about this idea. Paul calls himself a steward of the mysteries of God. He also calls himself a steward of the gospel. And I asked him, do you take that to mean not only the mystery doctrines of the church, which clearly he was a steward of those, right? Because Paul was the one given to reveal those things. And clearly he would be a steward of the gospel because God sent him out to the Gentiles and also to the kings and the Jews to reveal the gospel message. But I asked Pastor Bob, do you take that to mean all really all of scriptures at this point that uh, we, we should consider ourselves stewards of all of the scriptures? And he, he agreed with me that the answer to that is yes. At this point, we are the stewards. Now, what's that's kind of an interesting thing. One of the things we talked about that, you know, 
we have to consider is, and I learned something that was kind of cool. Uh, it shouldn't have surprised me, I guess. But uh, when when you look at it, we we the church, we have a canon that includes the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures plus the New Testament Greek scriptures, and we can add on the Aramaic. We know there's some Aramaic in the in Daniel and elsewhere in the in the uh, Old Testament, but. Uh, we are the ones, we look at that as our canon. It includes the Old Testament scriptures plus the New Testament scriptures. Well, when we're gone, when the rapture happens and all of a sudden now you have the Jewish stewardship that returns, you're going to have a whole, a whole group of people that are now going to have to say, hold on a second, we need to kind of understand these Greek, right? Because you're going to have potentially people who were unbelievers but were followers of Judaism who, when the rapture happens, are going to go, wait a minute, hold on. And now they're going to end up not only believing in Jesus. We know the 144,000, right? The 144,000 that will believe. And then beyond all that, they're going to have to go, wait a minute. We need to understand this, these New Testament scriptures because they're, they're important. Because now it looks like maybe they're true, right? So, uh, but I asked him the question. I said, Do, are, there, are there Hebrew translations of the New Testament? And there are. And I just never even thought about that, you know, because if you, if you think about it, when when that happens and the rapture has taken place, you know, of course, a lot of people can read English. Don't get me wrong. But in their wanting to go and actually study the things, a lot of these, I think a lot of them will actually go and look at the Hebrew translations of the New Testament. That's what they'll go to. But but I believe that when he says that he's a steward, uh, steward of the mysteries of God, that includes the mystery doctrines plus plus the rest of the canon, I believe, as well. But he talks about the mysteries in this particular case, particularly talking about the doctrines of the church. In 1 Corinthians 13, 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and I, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Right, So the idea of know all the mysteries, understand all the church age doctrines, have all knowledge, have all the faith, but I don't have love, I have nothing. First Corinthians fifteen fifty one. behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. The, the rapture event, right, the, not, just the, not just the taking up of the church, but the transformation, right? You have the dead in Christ that rise first, and they receive their resurrection bodies along with the ones who are alive at the time. And that whole thing where everybody, those who have already died as part of the church and those who are alive still as part of the church, being transformed and everybody having their resurrection body and then being taken up to Christ to meet, to meet him into the air, in the air and be taken home. All of that's mystery doctrines. All of that was never revealed in the Old Testament in any way. Ephesians 1, 9, uh, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind, his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. By the way, this is an interesting thing. Um, the summing up of all things in Christ, I mean, that, you know, that speaks of a lot of towards the end, end of everything, right? Not just what we have now, but... On into the future. But what's interesting is not only have you had the mystery revealed of the mystery doctrines related to the church, which is talked about in verse 9, but also we now have a picture 
of how it's all going to unfold in the end times as well with regard to the new heavens and the new earth, the fullness of the times, and so on and so forth. So we have a, we have a, a better picture of all of that as well. Ephesians um, 3, verses 3 and 4, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. And it goes on to say, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promises, promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the idea of the, the, the being fellow heirs is a big deal, right? We're fellow heirs together with Christ. So it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, we're all fellow heirs together with Christ, and that's part of the mystery doctrines. Later on in verse 9 of that same chapter, it says, And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Right. So if you think about it, there's, there's evidence, even though it's not stated explicitly here, the manifold wisdom of God, and you can kind of pick up on this, by the way, when you're reading the Old Testament scriptures, the manifold wisdom of God was made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places through Israel previously. If you think about it, look at all the different scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about how Israel, when, they, when they're following what God had for them to do, they're not only witnesses to other nations, Right. That's talked about how they're witnesses to other nations, but they're witnesses before the angelic realm. But this talks about through the church, right through the church. Now, we are the ones today who are revealing or making known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. But it's actually kind of implied. By the phrase might now be made known that it was previously being made known through Israel. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me on that? So previously Israel was, they were the stewards and they were the ones who were making known the wisdom of God to the heavenly realm, to the angelic realm. And now we're the ones doing that. By the way, that's another, that's another source of, of jealousy for Israel. The fact that we're the ones that are making that known now. Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The mystery of Christ and the church. Of course, if I were translating it, that church would be capital C because it's the, the church universal, if you will. Ephesians 6.19 says, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness. In this case, he says, the mystery of the gospel. So there's actually, you know, obviously an aspect of the gospel message itself that's part of a, the mystery doctrines. Well, we know Jesus revealed the gospel before the church ever started, right? But we now have a message that we can deliver about all the things that are now available to someone who believes today because they will be part of the church. And so the gospel message, the good news that you can reveal to somebody can include the mystery doctrines that as you be, if you place, place your faith in Jesus Christ, 
There is no Jew. There is no Greek. There is no slave. There is no free man. There is no, right? All of those, that's a church age mystery doctrine. But you can tell somebody if you believe it doesn't matter what your background was. It doesn't matter who, who your ancestors are. None of that matters because if you believe in Jesus, you are part of this group of people, the believers, the church. So there's part of the good news message that we have is church age doctrines, the mystery doctrines. Colossians 1, 26 and 27, that is the mystery which has been sealed up from the past ages and generations but now, has now been revealed to his saints to whom God purposed to make known what is the abundance of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the ex confident expectation of glory. And by the way, this is why, if you look, look at how many verses have we already seen that talk about how this was previously unknown, but has now been revealed. So when you look at all these verses that say that, it's kind of almost odd when you talk to people and they try to talk about things in the Old Testament and say, oh, well, that's talking about the church. No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, this, all of these verses make it clear this was never revealed before. This was sealed up. This was hidden, right? There's all kinds of different language used here, but the idea is this was never revealed previously. So you can't go back and open your Bible and read something in, in, uh, read something in uh, Daniel or read something in uh, Malachi or read, read something wherever you're reading the Old Testament. You can't read something... From the Old Testament and say, oh, well, that's, that's talking about the church. You can't go back, for example, as an example, you can't go back into Jeremiah 31, 31 and read about the new covenant with Israel and Judah and somehow say that's the church. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not talking about the church. That's a real good example of how you don't want to do that. But people do. Well, the Gospels... Again, uh, that's, where, that's where it's kind of interesting because in the, in the area of the Gospels, the church itself was not really revealed in the Gospels. The closest thing you get to that, if you want to say there's, a, there's, there's elements, the closest thing you get to that really is the upper room discourse where Jesus <clears throat> talks to his disciples after, after uh, uh, Judas Iscariot is gone, or after he's gone, he starts talking to the remaining disciples and he starts telling them about things that are getting ready to happen. Now, he did not reveal it as the church, which would be neither Jew nor Gentile and all the other things to do with the church. But he did start revealing things about, about the church, right? So that, that, but here's the thing. Here's why I'm comfortable with that. That's the night before the crucifixion. How long after that did the church begin? It wasn't very long, was it? couple months maybe at the most, right? We're talking about a couple of months. I, I remember at one point I knew the exact number of days, but it doesn't matter. It's not very long. So he reveals at that point, and then, and then from there it was given to Paul and others to reveal the rest of the information about the church. Now, the, the only other place you can find it in the Gospels is when Jesus says, on this rock, I build my church. I promise you when he said that, they didn't know what he was talking about. They didn't know, they had no idea that he was talking about what we have today as the church. Uh, so for them, it was just on this rock, I build my a group, a group of people, a gathering of people, that kind of thing. They had no idea what, that it was talking about this. Um, so yeah, the gospels are kind of interesting because again, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, is that revealed in the, the gospel message? It absolutely is in the, in the gospels. Of course, that's talked about in the Old Testament as well. As well. Abraham believed that it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, 
So, but still, the, the, the essence of the church, if you think about what it is, for example, stuff like we're all priests, right? We don't have a priesthood. We're all priests. Those kinds of things, that was never revealed even in the Gospels, right? Uh, but there, you can kind of, you can kind of, it's kind of, the upper room discourse is kind of right there on the edge, isn't it, of, of, of things being revealed, but, uh, but not really in, in, in its totality. Did I already go to 619? Yeah. I did. Uh, oh, I went to Colossians 1, uh, 26 and 27. Let's go to Colossians 2, 2. So that their hearts may be encouraged, having been united in love, and that they obtain all the spiritual wealth that comes from the full conviction of understanding, the outcome being a full knowledge of God's mystery, namely Christ, in whom are stored up all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, right? I mean, and the reality of it is when, when, when Paul says this in Colossians, the God's mystery, namely Christ, um, He's really talking about the, our identification with Christ. If you think about it, right? Our identification with Christ. Because it goes on then to say, in whom are stored up all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we're identified with him. We're co-heirs with him. Uh, we, have, uh, we have many blessings in Christ. And that's what Paul is really getting at. Uh, Colossians 4, 3. Praying at the same time for us as well that God might open up to us a door for the word so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned and pray that I might make it known boldly as I ought to speak. Second Thessalonians 2, 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. See, I believe this is why this passage, if you, if you look at it, Every other use of this word in the New Testament, musterion, the word mystery, every other use of that word relates to church age doctrines. So we look at this verse and we talk about the mystery of lawlessness already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. I believe if you understand it as again talking about a church age doctrine, I believe that those two words he should be capitalized because I believe that's talking about the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is taken away, if you think about it, the, the Holy Spirit, obviously the, we understand the Holy Spirit is God and as God, he's omnipresent. I get that. But in terms of a presence, like think about God himself and the way that he was visibly present in Israel through the Shekinah glory. Right. Think about that for a second. So the, upon the tabernacle and then eventually on the temple as well. The Shekinah glory was a manifestation of God that was, was present and it was tangible. I believe we have that today in the church. The church, why do I say that? Because we are, each and every one of us, we're temples of God, right? And as a group of people, we are the temple of God. And so here we are, we're the temple of God. We're filled with God, God the Holy Spirit. And so we are the presence on earth of God, just like the Shekinah glory was back in the Old Testament. You have the church itself. All of us as individual believers are the very presence of God on the earth. When the rapture happens and we're taken up and out, you don't have that anymore. And I believe that's what's being referred to here. He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And so then it says, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end the appearance of his coming. That's talking about the Antichrist. And the, the, what the point is, is that we have to be taken out of the way before that's going to happen. 
That's another reason why I'm, I'm pre-trib, right? I believe that we're taken out of the way before it happens. The Holy Spirit in us is taken out of the way because the church is no longer here. 1 Timothy 3, 9, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The mystery of the faith, again, is talking about uh, the faith. When it says of the faith, it's talking about the content of our faith, what you and I believe in, the content of our faith. And that is what we have as a, as a body of doctrines that we believe in. That ha- and if you think about it, we have, if you think about the, the, the overall content of the doctrines that we believe in, the vast majority of, majority of them that we focus on are church age related. Yes, we have doctrines that we know that are true, that come, come from the Old Testament. My goodness, Genesis 1 through 11. I mean, the whole Bible is built on top of that. So we have all kinds of doctrines, all kinds of principles, all kinds of things we understand from the Old Testament. But we, the, the bulk of the content of our doctrines are church age doctrines. It was on Pentecost. Yeah, so Jesus, Jesus, well, the night before he went to the cross, you have the upper room discourse. I don't know that I can count out the days, but, but this, so he then, then it's the third day that he's raised, and then he's on the earth for 40 days, right? And then he ascends, and it's only a few days after that that Pentecost takes place. So, what's that? Well, but that's, but that's, it's 50, it's 50 days, right, but it's not exactly from, but, but it ends up being roughly, it's less than two months, roughly, that, that between when he gave the upper room discourse and when, when the day of Pentecost occurs. So it's, it's in that kind of a time frame, right? Uh, so, yeah, he, again, three, third day, resurrected, 40 days on the earth, and then just a few days later, uh, the, the Pentecost occurs. When your Pentecost is the 50, I understand that, but when when does that begin but it's but it's in that time time frame it's roughly 50 days so it wasn't long it was wasn't long before the church began after he revealed all that in the upper room first timothy 3:16 says by common confession great is the mystery of godliness he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit seen by angels proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world taken up in glory that's again talk the mystery of godliness and it's talking about christ himself when you look at that he who was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, is talking about Christ. Talking about Christ. All right. Whoops. During this present dispensation of the church, Israel is under, under a partial hardening of their hearts. Now, what does that mean, partial hardening? There are Jews who believe today. Paula's husband, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, we can name a number of them. Uh, there's Jews that believe today. So their hearts are not completely hardened where they're incapable of believing. But, but it is more difficult. Because, I mean, the scripture here are telling us it's actually more difficult for a, a person who's of a Jewish background to actually believe. It's more difficult for them because there's a partial hardening of the hearts. This partial hardening was done in response to Israel's unbelief and rejection of the Messiah. It's not like God did it out for no reason at all. Remember with Pharaoh... Uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart and then God hardened it as well. We have the same thing with Israel. Israel hardened their hearts, right? They rejected the Messiah. And as a, as a result of that, there's a partial hardening of their hearts today. Israel as a nation will not repent and accept Jesus as the Messiah until the tribulation. You will have individual people who will. 
individual people will believe. But what happens today to a to a, an individual Jewish person who believes in Jesus as the Messiah? They are rejected by their people. Arnold Fruchtenbaum was basically considered dead to his family because he believed in Jesus as the Messiah. In the tribulation, they will believe in Jesus as the Messiah as a nation, as a people. Now, not every individual will, right? You will have some during the tribulation that won't believe. But as a nation, as a people, they will believe. It will be the first time that they will accept Jesus as the Messiah. However, because the hardening is only partial, individual Jews are capable of believing in Jesus throughout the stewardship of the church. That's what I was talking about earlier. Jews can believe today, but as a whole, the, the Jewish people will not. The times of the Gentiles corresponds to a dream interpretation given to Daniel by God. In Luke 21, uh, 24, there's a reference to this. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Right? And that's Paul references that here, the times of the Gentiles. Right? That they, they'll, they'll eventually come to a close. Well, all of that speaks back to Daniel chapter 2. Verses 31 through 45, the king's dream. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. The iron, the, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the strength and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you will arise another kingdom inferior to you than another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. And that's talking about, as it says there, Medo-Persia Persia and Greece. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, and as much as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. In those days, excuse me, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself, it itself excuse me, will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain, 
without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, we know, who, we know that stone that's cut without hands, that's, that's Christ himself. He's going to come and is going to crush it. But that hasn't happened yet. The times of the Gentiles are still ongoing. And we are now in the feet of iron and clay. Uh, if you think about it, the, the fourth kingdom was Rome, the Roman Empire, and that was iron. And then you have the iron and the clay, and that's where all the other gets injected in there. And if you want to really look at it in the beginning, you get the Germanic influence that's injected into the Roman Empire. And then today, really, all of Western civilization is basically the, the end result, if you will, of the Roman Empire. So we are, as part of the United States of America... Europe and other places were all part of the feet of iron and clay. And what's going to happen is uh, when Jesus returns at the second advent, he's going to come and he's going to destroy all of that. That's all going to get wiped out. That whole legacy, the, the times of the Gentiles is going to come to an end. And he's going to become a great mountain and rule over all the earth, right? That's when he becomes king, sits on the throne in Jerusalem and so on. So this was all a prophecy about the times of the Gentiles. These are all Gentile nations that are ruling at the time, right? And it's not until that stone comes and crushes it all uh, that it will change. And so we are in the times of the Gentiles. Now, don't think of the times of the Gentiles as the same thing as the church, because much of what was described there happened prior to the church, right? I mean, all if you think about Medo-Persia, Greece, Roman Empire, uh, I mean, you have a lot of that that happened before Christ came. I mean, it, we were in the times of the Roman Empire when Jesus came, right? I mean, the Jews themselves they found themselves under the roman rule and that's why they were hoping for a king that would come and free them from their roman oppression so you've already gone through babylon and persia greece and you're into rome when jesus comes well he did not crush he did not crush uh all of that at that point in time remember he didn't come and destroy at that point in time but he will yet future so uh the times of the gentiles still carry on this period of history is characterized by four great Gentile empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, having dominion over Israel. That's part of the thing to keep in mind. Uh, the final phase, the feet of iron and clay, is the Western world, which would spring out of Rome. After the rapture, the feet of iron and clay will take the form of a revived Roman empire, which rises out of the Western world during the tribulation. Now, how do I know that? See, that's actually not really ever talked about exactly in the Old Testament scriptures, but when we get to the book of Revelation, if you remember when we did our eschatology study, when we did Daniel Revelation, when you get to Revelation, you start finding out, wait a minute, what's going to happen here is the people, this is how it's mentioned, the people who killed the Christ, and who was it that put him on the cross? It was the Romans that did that, right? Well, the, the people that killed the Christ, they're going to actually rise up again. So there'll be a revived Roman Empire comes out of the Western world during the tribulation. Uh, the times of the Gentiles will finally come to an end at the second advent of Christ. That's what I was talking about. So I didn't, uh, I didn't even know I had all those points on there. But, but I was just talking about that same thing uh, before we even got there. The fullness of the Gentiles refers to blessings for the Gentiles during the stewardship of the church and is not the same thing as the times of the Gentiles. So there's a, another term, the fullness of the Gentiles. That's blessings that we can, can experience today during the stewardship of the church. Uh, it's not the same thing as the times of the Gentiles. Very different. You have to distinguish those. There's a reason they, the different words are used. Uh, the dispensation of the Gentiles, if you will, mankind. I, I like to think of the dispensation of man. 
Is that period of time from Adam to the call of Abraham, it's not the same thing as the times of the Gentiles or the fullness of the Gentiles. So prior to the call of Abraham, right, when you had just mankind on the earth, right, we weren't divided into Jew and Gentile. That's why I don't really like to think of it as Gentiles because until the call of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the 12 tribes, until you have that established, uh, the promises established, the covenants established with Israel, there really is no distinction between the peoples like that. It's only after that happens that you have Israel, the Jews, and then the rest of the world, which are the Gentiles. So prior to all of that, it's just mankind. That's why I phrase it that way. But some people talk about it in terms of dispensation of the Gentiles prior to the call of Abraham. Uh, But even then, that dispensation is not the same thing as the times of the Gentiles or the fullness of the Gentiles. Those are all different, different terms. In the end, all Israel will be saved as they enter the millennial kingdom under the new covenant, right? So when Israel is established in the millennial kingdom under the new covenant, all Israel will be saved. There will be no one who's not, right? All of Israel at that point will be saved as a nation and as individual people as well. But the nation of Israel will be... Will be a, a, so for the first time, here's a way to think about it. For the first time, really... Uh, since the, since the very beginning of the call, right? When you have the call, we have Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and you have the 12 tribes. I think we can all make an argument that Abraham was a believer. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> I think we can make an argument that Isaac was a believer. I think you can make an argument in spite of all of his foolishness that Jacob was a believer. And if you look at the record of it, you can also say the 12, the 12 sons of Jacob were believers. So in the beginning of the call of Israel, you had nothing but believers as part of it. But after they start having children, after those 12 start having children, it doesn't take long at all before you've got plenty of unbelievers. And so for most of the history of the nation of Israel, it's been made up of unbelievers and believers alike. When you get to the millennial kingdom, you will have a nation, Israel as a nation, made up of nothing but believers. Now, how long does that last? Well, they're going to procreate, aren't they? And you're going to end up with unbelievers. But under the, under the new covenant, uh, all of Israel will be saved as, as individuals and as a, an entire nation. This will take place after the wilderness judgment of when Jesus Christ has purged Israel of all unbelievers. Ezekiel 20, verses 34 through 38. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out. I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. This is very similar, by the way, if you think about it, as to how the sheep and goats is going to take place. But the sheep and goats is for the Gentile nations. This is for the people of Israel. I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord. And I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge from you the rebels... And those who transgress against me, and I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. In other words, before they are able to enter into the land under the new covenant in the millennial kingdom, the unbelievers have to be purged. It's just like what we have with the sheep and goats. They're separated out. Unbelievers are, are gone. So the millennial kingdom is going to begin with nothing but believers. So this, but this is the judgment for the people of Israel. This judgment comes at the end of the tribulation, which is a time of spiritual revival for Israel. That's the good news. Why do I say that's good news? Because it means that there's going to be 
there's going to be a lot of believers at that point. There will be a lot of believers. So when the purging takes place, it's not like if you did a purging today, I mean, what percentage of the Jewish people would survive if you did a purging today? Because, I mean, how many, what would you estimate? Maybe 5% of, of people that are of Jewish uh, of Jewish heritage actually believe in Jesus as the Messiah? I bet it's a small number like that, right? Something like that. And uh, so if, if you had a purging today, it would be 95% of all the Jewish people. When, when we get to the end of the tribulation, when this judgment takes place, there's going to be a lot of believing Jews at that point, right? Because remember, that's part of the purpose of the tribulation is to get the Jews to repent. So there's going to be a lot of believing Jews. The Mosaic Covenant could only cover Israel's sins as they look forward to the coming Messiah who would be their redeemer, right? That was, that was the whole idea of the covering of the sins. They would go through the, you know, they would go through the process. They would confess their sins. They would do all the things, right? Even, even in their faith itself, their sins were atoned for. They were covered over because they were looking for the coming Messiah. Uh, but the new covenant that has been ratified by the blood of Christ uh, will remove Israel's sin and bless them forever. Right, so Isaiah 59:21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. And see, that's the interesting thing. If you look at that, so the Jewish people as a nation will be believers in its entirety at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. This verse actually tells me that by and large, even their children and their children's children will be believers, right? So how many of the Jews during the millennial kingdom will, will be unbelievers? If there, any, if there are any at all, it's going to be a very small number because according to this passage, uh, it's not going to fall from the mouth of the offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring. So what I'm getting at is the majority of the unbelievers that you have at the end of the millennial kingdom that rebel and go up against Christ uh, in Jerusalem, while he's on the throne, the majority of them are going to be Gentiles because the Jewish people, by and large, are going to be faithful. It's kind of a cool thing to think about, too. This, Of course, this is a New Covenant uh, verse passage here, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not with the church. Uh, verse 32, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, that's the Mosaic covenant, right? When he led them out, that was the Mosaic covenant. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put the, my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, again, the language of the Old Testament in terms of sin is the atonement, the covering over. But this is different. Why is this different? Because the Christ has already come. This, the fulfillment of this right here is only possible because Jesus fulfilled that on the, on the cross. So the new covenant can only be fulfilled because of what Jesus did on the cross. And that's why it can, that he can go say that he'll remember it no more. Luke 22, 20. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, 
A lot of people today, they don't understand what that means. They'd start talking about new covenant with the church. No. What Luke was talking about here in terms of the quotation of Jesus in his own words, he, Jesus was saying the covenant is the, the, this is the blood. My blood is the new covenant, right? This, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So the new covenant, our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross, right? But Israel's sins will be forgiven in, under the new covenant because of what Jesus did on the cross. This, what this verse is talking about, is the fact that the new covenant with Israel and Judah will be fulfilled because of the blood of Christ. That's very important to distinguish. Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old, uh, excuse me, and growing old is ready to disappear. So the old covenant, part of the past. New covenant, part of the future. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, all of that never took away sins, right? It couldn't, it's, in, it's, there's no, there's nothing effective about the, the sacrifice of all those animals. It's the, it's the one sacrifice is the only one that matters. And like I said, that's, we are, we are blessed by the forgiveness of our sins because of what Jesus did on the cross. But that's also something that Jesus was doing for Israel and their ultimate fulfillment under the new covenant as well. That's why he says that in the Gospels. All right, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and stop right here. Uh, we'll come back and we'll pick up uh, from here next time because we're already at almost 10 till, and we, got, and we actually got started on time. So um, goes on for, in the next verses regarding the Gospel. They are subjected to hostility for your sake and so on. We'll look at that next time, which will be not this Sunday, not the following Wednesday, but Sunday the 19th. We will come back and take a look at this, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we had to look at these verses that are so, so important. It's so important for us to understand what you are, what you are doing in our lives as part of this dispensation, the mystery, uh, mystery doctrines that relate to the church, that, the dispensation we live in now. But it's so important for us to understand the promises, the covenants that you have made with the people of Israel and how those things are going to be fulfilled. And it's such a blessing to be able to look at what Jesus Christ did on the cross and understand how much it means for us today as part of the church. And the, the, our sins are taken away, thrown, thrown as far as the east is from the west and so on and so forth. We, we are not 
having to worry about condemnation anymore because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We've been removed from condemnation. We have so many blessings that we have in, in, our, in our daily lives and to look forward to as well, the inheritance we look forward to. And all of that is because of what Jesus did on the cross. But the people of Israel also have wonderful things to look forward to, the blessings of the new covenant for Israel. What an amazing thing to contemplate. And none of that would be possible without him actually going to the cross. There's no way that covenant could be fulfilled unless he went to the cross and he died for the sins, our sins, all of our sins, as well as the sins of the Jewish people. And we thank you that when the tribulation comes, there will be a a massive repentance of the people of Israel. They will come to realize that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah, and they missed it. And then there will be great blessings for them in the millennial kingdom as well. Your scriptures tell us that that they're going to be faithful. They are going to be a faithful nation, a faithful people unto you uh, during the millennial kingdom. And it will be the first time in, in the history of Israel that they will be that way. So we thank you for these scriptures that remind us of this. We thank you for the wonderful blessings that we have. And we thank you for the, the message that we can learn to help us understand that we need to be, we need to be positive towards the Jewish people. We need to be uh, supporters of the Jewish people. We need to be supporters of the nation of Israel that is around today. We need to... We need to be doing everything we can to try to share the gospel with them. Yes, they have future blessings to look forward to, but they could be part of this, this particular dispensation, this particular stewardship right now if they'll only believe in your son, Jesus Christ. So help us to share that with them. Help us to be uh, bold with the gospel message so that we might lead anyone and everyone who's willing to hear uh, to faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and holy name. Amen.